Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. There's a church here and there wasn't one before. That's why we give. We give the Lottie Moon Christmas offering all through this month in December. And, of course, at our Christmas Eve service, we've set the goal of 51400 It will pay for one missionary for a year somewhere in the world. So you pray about how the Lord would have you give. Father, we love you and we serve you. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open the truth of your text. Lord, we thank you that in a world that seems to be spinning absolutely out of control, that you give us a firm, firm foundation upon which to stand. And so I pray we would just understand the importance of studying your word, of clinging to your word, of living by the truths of your word. Father, I pray you give us the ability to understand exactly what you're saying in your text this morning. And I pray through the power of the Spirit, you give us the ability to be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25. We are continuing our study this morning through the book of Genesis. We, at this point in our study, have walked through the life of Abraham. And just to kind of catch you up and where we left off last week, last week we saw the life of Abraham come to an end. A man who had given his life to the Lord, a man who had given service to the Lord, a man who was, of course, not always perfect, but he was, in the end, obedient, and the Lord, in his word, called him faithful. And then we took a look last week at two diverging paths, the path of the promise that we're going to look at this morning, and the path of Ishmael, who we saw the Lord promise many descendants, and we ended last week with the idea of the hostility of Ishmael to all those around him, and the idea of Islam and We have seen in the last few days the dangers of radical Islam. So our hearts and our thoughts and our prayers go out to the people of Paris. I want to put back up for you, I put on the screen last week some resources. I want to put those up again maybe more timely than last week when I first talked about them. If you're interested in this and learning more about Islam and the Christians that are coming to faith, excuse me, the Muslim background people that are coming to Christ, coming to faith, these three books and then this website can talk to you all about it it's on podcast from last week take a picture of it with your phone if you want to that's an easy way to do it and you'll have those resources um but we need to be aware folks Uh, we need to educate ourselves we need to take it upon ourselves to learn and to understand And, and i'll say this about the attacks in paris because i can promise you those won't be the last attacks we'll ever see the only hope that we have of ever stopping this is Christ. You understand that? There are political options, there are military options. I understand that, I get all that. I'm I'm with you there, I get that. But in the end, we're never going to stop this without the hope of Christ. Because if somebody could have gotten to those attackers before they did what they did with the gospel of Jesus Christ and those men had been saved, this would not have happened. 
And so I think we need to take a kind of a, a spiritual look at that and understand, at least in my mind, this video was timely. We, did, we were going to plan to do this video well before what happened this week and the events of this week. And so the idea of having missionaries in Muslim countries and our funds supporting those men and women, planting churches among these people is paramount. We got to keep doing this. We, we got to keep pushing. We got to keep pushing. We got to keep going. Because if, if not us, then who, Right? Blessed are those whose feet bring the gospel. That's what Romans tells us. We got to be bringing the gospel. So we either got to go or we got to send and we got to fund it because the world is in danger of giving way to this if we're not very careful. And Lord has put us here for such a time as this. And I think we need to step up to the plate and deliver. You pray about what the Lord have you to do. Now, Genesis chapter 25. We're going to continue our study this morning through the life of Abraham. He's passed away. Now we're going to see Isaac and the son of promise. We're going to see, again, this is big picture. We're going to see the promise of the Lord manifest itself through his people and exactly what he's called them to do and who he's called them to be. So Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 19. We have it on the screen for you. You can follow along in your Bibles with me. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac, right? So now we've kind of made a break. We've moved out of the life of Abraham. Now the, the scripture is clear. We're moving now to the family line of Isaac, who's Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. I, Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel of Aramean, from Padaman, Aram, the sister of Laban of Aramean. Verse 21, and Laban will appear again, by the way. We're going to see him a lot. Verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, I want to stop there and make a point, because what's happening inside of this woman in her womb during pregnancy is more than just pain of childbirth. It's more than just two children moving around. It's more than just two brothers that we'll get to in just a few minutes, kind of arguing in the womb, so to speak. Here's the truth, number one. It's a big picture, and I want to think through it for a few minutes. What we see in this first text, these first few verses, are two nations that are battling. Two nations battle. Now, remember from a few weeks ago, Isaac and Rebecca were married, and we talked about that. And, and in that process of that marriage and the calling of the Lord, we saw the faithfulness of God. You may remember, God answered the prayers of his servant, of, of, of Abraham's servant. God gave him safe travel. God had already prepared the heart of Rebecca, And we talked about what a beautiful picture this was and how the Lord in advance had prepared and kind of lined things up so it would go according to plan. But now we're going to fast forward 20 years. Isaac and Rebecca have been married 20 years have passed. Isaac is clear about the promise. Isaac knows what the Lord promised his father, Abraham. Isaac knows that he's the son of promise. Isaac knows that through him, eventually one day Messiah will come. This is big picture. But here's the problem. Isaac understands the promises of the Lord. Isaac understands the blessings of the Lord. Isaac understands that one day Messiah will come through his line. But Isaac and Rebekah at this point don't have any children. And so Isaac looks around with the question, what am, what am I supposed to do now, Lord? 
I mean, you promised my father, and now you've promised me. I know I'm the son of promise through, through my children. Messiah will one day come. What am I supposed to do because I don't have any children? Well, look at the response in verse 21. Look exactly what Isaiah did. I think it's a beautiful picture. Isaiah prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. So the story kind of progresses. She gets pregnant, a blessing from God. But then we see another problem in verse 22. The Bible says the the babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went on to inquire of the Lord. And I want to pause there for a second. I want to kind of answer this question. When When I read this the first time in my study, and I thought through this a little bit, I've read this 100 times. I asked myself the question, what's the big deal about the babies moving, right? That's a very normal thing. We have four children, and I can remember very clearly during the times of Amy's pregnancy, we could see sometimes physically the babies moving, if you've ever seen that. And she would tell me they're kicking, feel here, and you can, you can feel the babies moving. Some of you have experienced that, and so it's not a big deal to feel, feel these babies moving. What's the big deal about verse 22? Well, the big deal is in that word jostled. It's an important word. In fact, scholars explain this word to mean this. Jostled means a violent collision, a crushing or breaking. The stem of the verb indicates reciprocal blows occurred between the children. It's almost like these two sons are fighting within the womb. Now, how many of you, just out of curiosity, men, how many of you have brothers? I'm just curious. I never had a brother, but is it true that brothers can sometimes be mad at each other and fight? Is that true? Is there any truth to that? Yeah, we laugh because we know it's true, right? <laughs> I know that brothers and sisters can fight. I've kind of been down that road. I know sisters can fight because I have little daughters in my house. And so I understand that sometimes siblings will argue with each other and they'll be upset with each other and sometimes they'll even fight. But this is well beyond that. For one reason, they're still in the womb. But the second thing, this is more than just these babies kicking. These babies seem to be fighting, and it's such a violent collision, such a crushing and breaking by this word's definition, that Rebecca decides to do something about it. Now, this is the important part of these first few verses. Isaac and Rebecca both face struggles and difficulties in their lives, and their answer to those struggles is what? Prayer. See that? They say, you know what, Lord, we're not quite sure what's about to happen. We're not sure what's going on. We're not sure why you're doing these things. We're not sure why we're experiencing these things. But, Lord, our answer to this is prayer. Now, this is known as intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is very simply where you go and pray for somebody in need. We've all done that before. I always enjoy when I first meet somebody or get to know them a little bit better, hear their salvation story. So I like to ask the question, tell me about your salvation Tell me about where you came from. What was, what was church like? Did you grow up in church? Did you not grow What was it like for you as a kid? And everybody's got a different story. But I hear the, the same story or the same type of story. Oftentimes somebody will say something like this. Well, I grew up in a home where, you know, mom or dad or somebody in my family was Christian and went to church. And I went some, but it didn't mean a lot to me. Maybe this is your story, by the way. And you say, I grew up and I was kind of rebellious and, and I, I walked away from the Lord. I stepped away from the Lord maybe in high school and college. And, and maybe you'd say something like this, I, I walked down a path that I shouldn't walk down. But it seems like so many times the story ends up going somewhere like this. They'll say, you know, I, I walked down this path and I was unfaithful and I was sinful. But there was always somebody in my family praying for me. You ever heard that story? Somebody will say something like this, you know, I, I, I did things I shouldn't have done. But I always knew that my grandmama was praying for me. Or I always knew that my mama was praying, praying for me. 
Or there were times when I would walk by my parents' room at night and I would hear my daddy praying for me. It's the idea of intercessory prayer. See, all of us as followers of Jesus Christ, I promise you, you may not know it until you get to eternity, but all of us are products of somebody else's intercessory prayer. Do you understand that? We're where we are now because somebody invested in our lives, loved us enough, prayed for us enough that the Lord did an amazing, miraculous work in our hearts. And so here's the question we come to at this point. Who are you interceding for now? Who are you praying for by name now? Who will one day tell the story of your faithfulness and prayer? Are you going to be the picture that somebody one day tells Are you going to be the story that one day somebody tells? You know, I was broken and I was making mistakes and I'd strayed, but I always knew you fill in your name was praying for me. That's who I want to be. We understand the importance of prayer. We understand even more when we're going through difficult times because here's here's a truth we understand from this text, but we also understand it in our lives. Life is not always easy even when we're in the will of God, right? Sometimes we, we, we may have this confusion in our life and we may be thinking that because we're following the Lord and we're in his will that everything's going just fine that's not always the case we know that to be true here's a man Isaac and his wife Rebecca who are in line with the promise they're following the will of the Lord they're doing everything he's called them to do and yet their lives is still difficult they still face struggles they still face trials and we understand From this context, when we face those trials, when we face those difficulties, we do it with faith in the Lord and we do it in great prayer. So I want you to notice the response from the Lord in verse 23. Here's what the Lord says to her. Bring that back up if you would. Two nations are in your womb. This is the answer. Lord, Rebecca says, why are these babies doing this? They're moving, they're fighting. I I feel this, this strange sensation. He says, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, this is way more than just a family genealogy. This is the tale of two nations. You understand that? It's a big picture look, again, of the promises of God. We're going to have the promise of God and the path of God and the path of the promise all the way to Messiah through Isaac, and eventually we'll see through Jacob. And then we're going to see the other son, Esau, stray and go a different direction and sin against the Lord. And it's interesting because this is not the first time in Scripture we've seen struggle within families, especially between brothers. We see it between Cain and Abel. We saw that earlier in Genesis. We've already seen it between Isaac and Ishmael. Today we've seen between Jacob and Esau. Later in Genesis, we're going to see it between Joseph and his brother. And so this struggle in the womb... It's the foreshadowing of the struggle these brothers are going to have throughout their lives. In fact, if you were to continue to study through Genesis, if you were to continue to study these passages of Scripture, you would see that these two brothers, Jacob and Esau, we're going to get there in just a second. Esau's descendants will become the nation of Edom. Jacob's descendants will come, become the nation of Israel. And what we're going to see in this context is as they grow and as they move through life, they're going to argue and they're going to fight. In fact, we're going to see them war with each other. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 13, David, who's the king of Israel, became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Saul, right? That's Edom. That's the followers of Esau. Numbers chapter 20, but Edom answered. He's speaking to the Israelites. 
You may not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. So this is just a a picture, right? It's, It's in the womb. It's a foreshadowing of things to come. These are more than just brothers. These are nations that will battle against each other. One for the supremacy in the things of the Lord and one for the supremacy in the things of this world. There's a difference we'll see in just a second. But it's more than just brothers fighting. It's the battle of nations that will last for years and years to come. Now, by the way, this is not a sermon about abortion, and I'm not going to talk a lot about this, but we see very clearly in this text, I just thought I needed to bring this out, even before these children are born, God has a plan for them. You see that? They're not described as just pieces of flesh. They're not described as unhuman. The idea that an unborn child is not really a person is not only ridiculous, but it's very unbiblical. We see it all through Scripture. Oftentimes before people are born, we see that the Lord has plans for them. In this case, he's got plans for two nations. Now let's see where this goes, verse 24. So when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. Now by the way, we knew they were boys. We knew Jacob and Esau. We know the story. She at this point does not. The first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out. With his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, and Rebekah loved Jacob. Now here's truth number two. I'm going to say it, then I will spend some time explaining it to you. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Now we find that phrase in some verses later in Scripture that I'm going to get to here in just a second. It doesn't bring that out here in Genesis 25, but there are other Scriptures that look back that kind of cast light on that. So we're going to talk about that here in just a few minutes. But before we get there, I want you to understand the contrast between these two brothers. These are twin brothers born just a few moments apart, and yet we see vast differences and contrasts between them. Esau... Born just a few minutes early, was red. The Bible says he has a lot of hair. Became a skillful hunter. His descendants, of course, as we talked about, were the people of Edom that lived outside the promised land. Isaac loved Esau, the Bible says, more than he loved Jacob. So if you wanted to kind of summarize this, we, we would say Esau was a hunter, kind of a burly man, a strong guy, maybe a man's man to use our definition. Tough and rough and liked to be out in the country and kind of do things. He liked to hunt and bring all this stuff in to eat it. Jacob, on the other hand, was kind of the opposite. He was more orderly. He was well-disposed. He liked to stay home and maybe study. He was more peaceful, more reserved. And so we kind of get the sense as Esau is out hunting and doing the wild stuff, the adventurous stuff, Jacob is at home. He's relaxed. He's thinking through things. He's more thoughtful. We see very different men. We see a lot of contrasts, a lot of differences between their lives. But here's the biggest contrast of all, and this is important. We're going to think through this. The biggest contrast between these two men we see in Scripture is that God chose Jacob over Esau. God chooses Jacob over Esau. Now, I want to read from you Malachi chapter 1 because Malachi chapter 1 points to this passage of Scripture, sheds a little bit more light on it, helps us understand it. I I just want to warn you, I want want to go for just a few minutes into kind of some theology, but I want you to stay with me. This is important. I want you to hear this and I want you to understand this. Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, the Lord says, I have loved you, says the Lord. 
But you ask, how have you loved us? Now here's the connection here. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? And here's the phrase. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated and have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now Paul picks up this same idea in Romans chapter 9, this idea of, of God loving Jacob and hating Esau. And so he asks this question very simply, how is it that God could choose? Now that's simply what the Bible says. How is it God could choose one brother over another? Well, the simple answer to that question, he can choose one brother over the other because he's God. It's just really that simple. Now, we like to get into theology here, and we like to talk about God's elect or election. Some of you are familiar with that term. We talk about predestination or, or foreknowledge. And we see scripturally, very clearly here, that God chose Jacob. That's one side of the coin. But the other side of the coin we see as we study, and we'll see this as we continue to work through Genesis, is that Esau is responsible for his actions. He's got a choice. And so on one side, you've got the idea of God's choice and God's sovereignty. On the other side, you've got the idea of man's free will and man's responsibility. And it becomes a confusing theological discussion. And so what's happened over the centuries is people have written and studied and read. And Charles Spurgeon summed it up. I want to read it because I think he can say it better than I can. The fact is that the great questions about man's responsibility, free will, and predestination have been fought over and over and over again and have been answered in 10,000 different ways. And the result has been that we know just as much about the matter now as when we first begun. I think he's right. See, we, we, we need to preach the truth of the gospel. And so what you find in Scripture, and this is, this is the way I kind of explain it, is you find tension there's tension between these two, and we need to be careful not to go more to one than the other. The Bible's clear that God chooses the sovereignty of God. We see that scripturally. We can't deny that. It is absolute truth. But we also see over and over again the idea of man's responsibility and man's choice. And there's this tension between these two. When we fall too far on one side or the other, I think we miss the truth of Scripture. So we see in this context that the Lord chose this man as the promised son. Now, some of you may say something like this. Okay, I get that, right? So God chose Jacob. He chose the younger. The, the Bible's clear. I get that. But Adam, there's a word that's used here that I'm not real comfortable with. In fact, Malachi uses this word hate. He says that I've loved Jacob. The Lord loves Jacob, but he hates Esau. Some of you are thinking, that's a, that's a harsh word to use for the Lord because the Lord all through Scripture tells us that he loves us, right? John three sixteen for God so, what's the word? Love the world that he gave, right? We see that in other contexts. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, verse 8, whoever does not know God, excuse me, whoever does not know love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. There's this truth in scripture that God loves us. And so some people struggle with this idea of hate. Now I want to explain this just for a second. I want you to stay with me because this is important. I don't usually do this, but I want to talk about this Greek word for a second because it helps us understand. In Romans 9, I'm not going to go into that passage. You can read it. In Romans 9, Paul quotes Malachi 1. He says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And the word hated in the Greek is the word missio. 
Now, so that, that means nothing to me. So let me define it for you. It's important. It means in the original Greek, and one thing you begin to understand when you study the languages is when we try to translate a word from Greek into English, the meanings are not always the same. It's hard to understand. Sometimes they're variable different meanings. And sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's hard for us to, to translate a Greek word clearly into an English word. But in this context, in Romans 9, Paul uses this word hate. And in the Greek, it means to detest on a comparative basis. To love someone or something less than someone or something else. One scholar explains it like this. Having a relative preference for one thing over another by way of expressing either aversion from or disregard for the claims of one person or thing relatively to those of another. So it's a little different than what we understand love and hate. It's more the idea of a choice. Now, to put it in perspective and to help you understand it better, I want to point our attention to Luke 14 just for a second. Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. You'll be familiar with this passage of Scripture. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, you'll remember these words, if anyone comes after me and does not, do you remember the word, hate his father and his mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, Such a person cannot be my disciple. It's the same word in Luke that Paul uses in Romans 9. It's the same word used in Malachi. It's the same understanding in Genesis 25. Again, we're just drawing points. We're making connections here from the New Testament back to the Old Testament. So what we see based on this truth and based on the teachings of Luke 14 and based on the teachings of Christ, Christ doesn't command us to hate our family. Christ doesn't command us to hate our children. Christ instead says, listen, given the choice, if your family disowns me or disowns you because of me, you're forced to choose Christ over your family. You understand the distinction there? It's not that you hate your family, it's that you love Christ more than your family. So when we see this idea of God loving Jacob and hating Esau, it's not the idea of love and hate that we understand in our modern language. It's more the idea of the choice. I'm going to love Jacob enough that I'm going to choose him. You say, why did he have to choose one over the other? Because the line of Christ, again, let's keep the big picture. We get bogged down in the weeds sometimes and we miss the big picture. The big picture is that the Lord blessed Abraham, he blessed Isaac, and one of Isaac's sons, only one could be the son of promise. You understand that? Only one could carry on the line of Messiah. And so because one could carry on the line of Messiah, God had to choose one of these two children, and he chose Jacob. But here's the problem we're up against. God has chosen Jacob, but Jacob is not the firstborn, and therefore he does not have the birthright. That's a big deal. So let's move on. Verse 39. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, now this is several years later. These boys are in their teenage years, maybe a young adult years. Jacob was cooking some stew. Esau came in from the open country famished. Now let me just kind of put this in terms and we'll understand him. The idea is that Jacob is at home. He's relaxed, right? We're just thinking about his personality. He's calm. He's under control. He's thought through things. Maybe he's planned out his week, maybe a month and a half. He's got his stew ready, his soup. He's cooking. Everything's nice. Everything's in order. He's relaxed. And all of a sudden his brother comes bursting in the door. I just imagine him throwing the door open from the open country famished, right? He's just come in from a hunt he must not be as good as he thought he was because he didn't find anything to eat right that's a little side note in the text here but he throws the door open he's famished and he says to Jacob quick let me have some of that red stew I'm famished that's why he was also called Edom right and the Hebrew words there are with red and Esau fit together 
Verse 31, Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Now we're going to talk for a minute about Esau and some of his sins, but Jacob wasn't exactly a stand-up guy either here. He could have said to his brother, I'm sorry you're so hungry, take mine. Eat my stew. Instead, he sees an opportunity, right? First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread, some lentil stew. He ate and drank. And then he got up and he left. And Esau despised his birthright. Now, by the way, if you ever ask the question, what's the worst deal in the history of the world? This is probably it. One brother sells all of his father's possessions, all of the blessings of the Lord, the promise of Messiah for a bowl of soup and a piece of bread. I think it points to exactly what was going on in Esau's heart. Here's truth number three. We're we're winding this up. Number three, Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. Now, we don't understand birthright in our society. We don't understand what it means. We don't understand why it's important. But in Mosaic law, the birthright, or the the right of the firstborn, entitled that child to double portions of the father's possessions. Everybody got a little. The person with the birthright got a double portion. But it's more than that for Jacob and Esau. Not only do we have monetary stuff on the line, not only do we have the father's possessions on the line, we've got the things of the Lord in line. You understand that? We've got the promises and the blessings of the Lord. And so one scholar explained it like this. Additionally, in the case of Esau and Jacob, that meant the one to whom belonged the birthright was the one through who the covenant promise made to their grandfather Abraham would be realized. Ultimately, the Messiah would come through the holder of the birthright and bless the nations of the earth. Esau was the firstborn and the birthright was his, but like many, he failed to appreciate its value and sacredness. I think more than anything else, This points to the heart of this man. A man who in Hebrews 12 is referred to as godless. A man in Esau who is more concerned with the present, with what was happening now, with his hunger than he was with the future and with the blessings of the Lord. He very simply lacked God's perspective. Living for instant gratifications, it robbed him of the spiritual blessings the Lord had for him. And so let's fast forward a few thousand years and let's translate that to our lives as we kind of wind down this morning, finish this thing up. How often do we take what's here and now and experience the excitement and bring pleasure to ourselves now forsaking the things of the Lord in the future? Do you make your decisions day to day based on what the Lord's called you to do or what makes you happy in that moment? I say this all the time, but it boils down to just a real simple question. Are we pleasing God or are we pleasing self? Those are vastly different. And every conversation you have, every decision you make, every time you take action in your life, you're choosing to please the Lord or to please yourself. Esau chose in that very moment to please himself. And so just as God had predicted in this scripture, again, We see the promises of the Lord. We see the the path of the Lord. We see the direction of Messiah. Just as God had predicted, the greater will serve the lesser. It's a theme we see throughout Scripture, isn't it? Where those that are weak, those that are impoverished, are used of the Lord to do incredible things. And it's a picture of what's going to happen century later when a poor, 
unimportant young girl in a stable filled with animals, with no fanfare, with no one cheering, would give birth in very humble beginnings to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. God always uses the weak, those that seek him, those that serve him to do his will. The question we ask ourselves is, Lord, what can I do today so you'll bless me and use me for your honor and glory? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for the blessings that you've promised through Isaac and through Jacob now, Father. We thank you that you are faithful. And Father, we just pray that we would understand the truth of this text, Father, of your desire to use these men, of your desire to continue the line, of your desire to fulfill your promises. And Father, I pray we would just understand the, the lesson here from Esau, that we shouldn't trade the here and now for the future. We shouldn't trade the here and now, what feels good now, in favor of what you've called us to do. So help us to be godly. Help us to have long-term goals and views in mind. Help us to think about you and not ourselves. And then use us to bring you honor and glory in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you the opportunities we always do. The altar is open if you want to come and pray. Maybe you need to intercede on somebody's behalf. Maybe you need to be that person in the story that they always look to that's praying for them and always bringing them hope. Maybe you need to repent of your sins. Maybe you realize you're not on the same path as Christ, as Messiah. Maybe you need to repent of your sins and accept Christ. Or, or maybe you want to join our church. But this is your time to respond as we sing. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.